You're listening to Digging Deep, understanding the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Sacramento District, the show that tries to simplify what the district does. So the Sacramento District is what we call full-service district. It's, it's unique in a lot of ways. Floods of record are the biggest storm you've ever seen in the recorded history of the region. I mean, the last thing you want is to have um, water starting to seep through a levee or a dam. The number one thing for us is really people. We can't get it done without our people. Welcome to Digging Deep. I'm your host, Rick Brown. Our guest for this episode is Chief of the Planning Division at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, Sacramento District, Ms. Alicia Kirchner. Alicia joined the Sacramento District team more than 20 years ago and now leads one of the largest planning divisions within the USACE enterprise, responsible for providing planning expertise to help identify and solve water resource problems for the district. Alicia joins us today to help us better understand the need for Sacramento region flood protection projects and the planning team's role in those projects from their onset. Let's get to it. Alicia, thanks for joining us. You know, I mentioned up front that you're the planning division chief for the Sacramento District, and I definitely want to talk about your division's role in the Sacramento District mission. But I also know you as kind of the de facto Sacramento flood control historian, and uh, I'd love to get into that a bit, too. Tell us about your background with the Sacramento District. Well, I started with the Sacramento District in 1990, and that was a pretty exciting time in the flood risk management world, um, certainly in the region. 1986 had been a big storm event, a series of storm events that really sort of stressed the whole region from a flood risk standpoint. And I was in high school sitting on a street that was flooded from storm drainage, which isn't something that the Corps really looks at, but still it was water and it made an impression on me. Can you paint that picture for us in 1986 as a teenager and seeing this happening? I mean, what does it look like and what does it sound like to you? Well, it was dominating the news as, of course, it, you know, something like that would. Um, I remember sitting in my house. It was raining out. The storm drains had backed up. And so the streets were, you know, somewhat flooded, some more than others. And I was honestly, I was trying to figure out how I was going to go down the street to my friend's house. So in my <laughs> in my world, it impacted me in a real way, not a not a dire way, but it was it was, you know, genuine. And I, I'll never forget that. So definitely a, a real community perspective. Um, you know, having grown up here and, and lived through that, you know, that event, not fully appreciating at the time what it was, but, you know, many, many years later, really understanding how, how serious of a flood risk the community was facing at the time and um, how near of a disaster we really did face. And how do you make that jump then to actually joining the Army Corps of Engineers? Well, I mean, for me, it was, can I, can I have a career that, you know, maybe get out in the field some, maybe you're in the office some. And, and so it was, for me, it was just really kind of exploring what, what was out there. And, you know, it, it captured my interest so much because it was so varied. We had, um, and, and particularly in planning division, we have an opportunity to get involved in a lot of aspects of solving water resource problems. Um, from a lot of really interesting perspectives. We do a lot of analysis. We engage with the public and uh, others and resource agencies, sister partner agencies. We research, we write, we present, and we just really kind of work collaboratively to identify water resource problems and solve them. But you could get to do it and really see it from 
engineering perspective, biological perspective, economic perspective, social perspective, or socioeconomic perspective. And my degree's in history. And that is not something that is um, an obvious career path for the, you know, the job that I have. But ultimately, in hindsight, it's lent itself pretty well to it. Because you're looking for source material, you're looking to tell a story, you're looking to understand a story so that you can tell a story um, to people that are not very technical. So you are just a history buff kind of by nature, which kind of explains how I always end up at your doorstep with my questions about uh, flood control history in Sacramento. Uh, but can, can you go a little further back than you mentioned about your first experience really as a teenager in 1986? Were there other significant flooding events in Sacramento prior to that? There were. Um, I didn't appreciate that at the time, certainly. But um, <laughs> in, in, my, in my work at the Corps, I came to understand um, Folsom Dam better. The dam was constructed in the 50s, and it was sized, as all core projects really are, on the hydrologic record, the history, um, what we know, you know, rainfall is going to look like, snowmelt is going to look like, the hydrology, and, and how much water could we see. Um, but while Folsom was being built, it started to experience, the region started to experience the first of five new floods of record. And floods of record are the biggest storm you've ever seen in the recorded history of the region. And there were five more of them starting while Folsom was just finished being built in like 55-ish, I think it was. So what that tells you right away or those that were there right away is like, well, we've got this great facility. It does a lot, but we need more. And that came back into sort of the forefront of the community's thinking in 1986. That was the next real big event. The 70s, there were some droughts and there were some years that had you know some rain more than others, but the next storm of record was 86. And that really caused all levels of government to step back and say, wow, this was a big event. The system got really torn up and stressed in a lot of ways. We got to work to improve it, get it back to what it was with some levy rehab. But then also, what can we do to make it better? And that's really been the focus of the last 30 years of my career with the district is how do, how do we reduce flood risk further and make it better? And that's really the focus of the district. There's always an idea of how bad it could get, right? You just talked about these these five events were the biggest events that you could ever imagine. But is what you could ever imagine ever really like the biggest event? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you plan? At, at what point do you say we can only plan to this level and beyond that? Well, I do know what you're saying. As I mentioned, so much of how we arrive at developing projects is based on the historic record. But what we're learning more and more and more, if you look at trends analysis for weather, is we're starting to see events in the country that are groupings of bigger and bigger and bigger events. You never know how big it could get. And this is really where our engineers and our statisticians you know, can help try and quantify. But with things like climate change, which has a lot of uncertainty around um, how to measure and predict. Um, it's, it is a challenge. The core for flood risk reduction projects has a methodology or a process we call risk and uncertainty that we apply to all of the aspects of our project development process. Basically, everything we know and everything we think we know and we think we can predict, we put bands of uncertainty around in case we're not quite right. But the real hindsight will be, were those bands big enough? Did we account for uncertainty adequately. And that's just a running constant dialogue that we have. And we're really seeing more and more, you know, across government, federal, state, local government levels, huge focus on really trying to better plan for the future and recognize that 
our history does not necessarily fully inform our future. Yeah. So the Sacramento district uh, has been around for more than 90 years. Beyond these historical uh, weather and flooding events that you've talked about already, what other type of flood control issues continue to drive the mission for USACE in this region? We've focused a lot on the high levels of flood risk that are present in a lot of our urban centers in our area of operation. A lot of the urban centers or Sacramento District's area of operation are in the Sacramento Valley or in northern Nevada and into Utah a bit and the um, smaller communities on the western slope of Colorado. So these are areas that we've looked at. But the the areas where there's known flood risk, where communities understand they've got risk of flooding, they've seen flooding, they are actively working to engage us or have been working with us to reduce flooding. Those are those are the known entities. What's really been exciting lately, especially, is we've got some non-construction and non-design authorities that allow us to work with smaller communities that might not otherwise have an opportunity to work with the core, you know, on maybe a big construction project. But we can really help them understand water in their area. We can help them understand flood risk give them some tools, maybe some mapping that help them plan their communities um, in a more informed way than some of the big established urban centers had benefit of when they were establishing, you know, so long ago and really help identify flood risk and help them communicate flood risk and really just kind of create that awareness, raise that awareness. And we've been doing that not just with many smaller communities throughout our area of operation, but also um, with some tribes. Let's step back for a second. Tell us a little bit more about your role as a planning division chief. What is the planning division's role in the Sacramento District's mission? Well, the planning division's role in the Sacramento District's mission and within the core is to provide a set of planning expertise in terms of solving and identifying water resource problems, so flood problems, maybe environmental environmental degradation, Um, things like that. So we have um, people that are trained as planners that help go through that problem solving process. And we bring those skill sets to our um, interdisciplinary teams, we call them the engineers and the real estate specialists and our contracting experts and construction experts. We also have economists, and they are doing economic analysis of projects as we go through a process to figure out what is a good project to build because the Corps of Engineers, as part of the federal government, is interested in getting the best return on the investment. And so the economic perspective is very important. And we also have a team of environmental and cultural resource specialists that are involved in not just our civil works program, but also on our military programs. Um, We have the responsibility and privilege in law to support our Army and Air Force colleagues with planning and um, design and construction on their um, installations. And so our environmental team oftentimes steps in to help them do environmental compliance surveys, historic property inventories, things like that. So we've got a team of planning professionals from multiple disciplines that plug in to help figure out, you know, problem solving, but also implementing? How do we put projects on the ground and do it in a way that is in compliance with federal laws and regulations? I wonder if you have a case study, uh, you know, a project, a recent project, a current project that kind of demonstrates the planning piece and and, and highlights what you guys do. 
I'm going to point at one we completed a number of years ago that's just finishing construction, and that's for Hamilton City, which is a small community about 85 miles north of Sacramento. And that is a community that had a levee constructed by early settlers in a non-engineered fashion in the early 1900s, which really did not afford the community any kind of reliable protection from flooding. So every year that the river rose, they were very likely to, if not flood, be really, really worried about it. It was also an area where the river had become disconnected from its adjacent floodplain because of this not very good existing levee. And so a lot of natural habitat, native habitat that would have been in that floodplain was gone. So the community was really interested in having a more reliable form of flood risk reduction. And for that community, it really came down to building a new levee, a good engineered levee, and um, one that they could you know, more reliably depend on. Well, levees are not cheap. So it really took the core and the community and the state of California, and in this case, the Nature Conservancy, sort of all coming together from different perspectives and figuring out how to best leverage what everyone could bring to the table to really maximize the benefits that the cost of a project would have provided. So the Hamilton City project not only provides that community with a new engineered, much more reliable levy, it's set back from the river a bit. And so it created some floodplain reconnection to the river and allows for habitat restoration along the river of native habitat. So native plants and species will be able to be established and occupy that space. And it really was a game changer when we were able to go back with that community and and the other partners and look at a broader array of accomplishments that that project could provide. And there are a lot of laws and policies and regulations that the federal government, including specifically the core, needs to go through and satisfy to be able to demonstrate that a project is sound. And that's really what the planning process is about. Yeah, I think it's no secret, really, that some of these projects take several years. And I know a lot of people wonder why it takes so long to work on some of these levee systems or to help remediate a dam. You mentioned a lot of regulations and such. I mean, does that have a big piece of it? You know, that is a, it's a complicated process, but the timelines, I think, most traditionally have really been driven by the funding amounts that the project receives each year. Um, technical complexities, absolutely, but but really the funding. And, you know, the average life of a civil works project used to be considered to be 20, 25, 27 years, something like that. But there has just been an absolute game changer for some projects because Congress and the administration decided to pick a set of projects in the country to fully fund. And with that full funding comes the opportunity and ability to accelerate being able to implement and and put a project on the ground. So we're kind of in new territory now where some projects have the ability to go so much faster. And it is because the funding has been provided. Um, When you don't have sufficient funding each year, it, it means your team members have to go do other things on other projects that are funded and you just lose a lot of momentum. So um, it, it's really also about discipline scoping, making sure that we're really looking at the questions in a study that are essential to the decision of whether or not the project should be built, and then saving some of the work to the design phase and, and figuring out some of the details later. You, you, you ultimately need to know what it takes to put a project in the ground. And 
you either have to figure that out in a study phase or you have to figure that out in the design phase or you're going to figure it out in the construction phase. And that's the worst case scenario because by then it's a series of surprises and you, you, you really hope to avoid that. Uh, but, but funding is really a, a big driver. And having partners that are really ready to implement a project, we're very fortunate in the Sacramento district to have some great, strong, experienced civil works sponsors, project partners. They contribute expertise. They contribute money. Um, funding for the project. And, you know, those are all things that have to line up for a, a project to be able to be done as quickly as possible. Well, what do these partners look like? Who are we talking about when, you, when you're highlighting partners or sponsors? Well, the federal government, the Corps, has a requirement as part of our civil works project for like flood damage reduction projects that we cost share with a non-federal sponsor. And non-federal sponsors are most typically states, counties, cities, maybe flood control agencies. Um, there's some basic requirements that um, have to be met for someone to um, be considered a non-federal sponsor. But most typically here in California, we are partnering with the state of California Central Valley Flood Protection Board and Department of Water Resources. And in uniquely in California, there is in turn a state law that requires that state projects include local government participation. And what we have seen since 1986 is um, the urban centers have formed flood control agencies that represent their local government in, in these projects. So we've got the Sacramento Area Flood Control Agency, the San Joaquin Area Flood Control Agency, the West Sacramento Flood Control Agency, the Sutter Butte Flood Control Agency, Yuba Water Agency. But it's it's really local government that looks at, you know, the public works um, departments, things like that. They're, they're, they're looking for things that are in their public's interest and they represent at the local level. And they're generally, they've got the ability to assess, to raise funding for projects. And also the sponsors for core civil works, flood damage reduction projects need to operate and maintain projects in, really in perpetuity. So they've really got, have to be entities that can demonstrate that they have that, that ability to commit to that obligation. Great explanation. And because I think you're probably too modest to bring this up yourself, I just, you know, I recalled coming across an email a couple of weeks ago that the planning community of practice has recognized your team for a few different things, right? Yes, we're very um, fortunate to have some agency level recognitions for some of our project teams and for some of our planning staff. So I'm looking at the list right here, the FY19 Outstanding Planning Achievement for Tribal Flood Preparedness and Emergency Response Workshop Team, mm -hmm. the FY20 Outstanding Planning Achievement California Flood After Fire Support, mm -hmm. the FY20 Noel Clay uh, Planning Champion, uh, Scott Miner. That's right. FY19 Planning Excellence for Dan Artho. And last but certainly not least, the FY19 Lifetime Achievement in USACE Planning for Alicia Kirchner. That's incredible. Yes, that was very nice. Thank you. And and the team and Scott and Dan also getting great recognitions. Um, you know, Sacramento is a great place to work. We have just infinitely interesting workload um, projects and problems to solve and great people to work with and great teams to work with, which really allows us to do some great things. And if you remember nothing else about what the Sacramento District brings to the region, remember this. There are a lot of really talented people from near and far that have come together to work on the problems that are facing the communities that we serve. And everyone 
is really interested in just doing the best work they can on the behalf of those communities. What inspired you down your chosen career path? I know we talked a little bit earlier about some of your experiences, but when you finally made the decision, was there one turning point for you? Oh, that's a really good question. I um, It's a bit of a chicken and egg um, story for me. I don't know if I was a planner before I became a planner or if I was a planner that found a place to be a planner. I really don't know that. I definitely am a planner one way or another. Does that carry over into your personal life? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't have to plan everything, but I do I do like to know that there's a plan in, in, in place for most things. I mean, I can be spontaneous as well, but you know, for the, for the big important things, yeah, I want to, I want to see the risk assessment. <laughs> Is there somebody in your past who had a big impact on you either, you know, career wise or, or in your personal life? There've been a lot of really great people career wise. I applied for a planning associates program, which is the course leadership program for, for planners a number of years ago. And I, I, articulated in that, that I'd had the opportunity to work with some amazingly talented planners. Planning is about critical thinking, really, and understanding information and what's important and what's maybe not as important. And I really feel that a couple of people I worked with early on helped develop that in me. And um, if I name them, then I'll worry about not naming other ones. (laughs) But I, I I I had just excellent, excellent bosses and mentors from day one. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Is is there a, a favorite author that you have or are you reading a book right now that you would recommend, whether it's, you know, about, you know, the core or, or planning or anything outside of that? Just anything that's like on your nightstand that you would love to just share with somebody else? Um, I go back and reread things often, more often than not. But I'll tell you that one of my favorite leadership books and leadership books are hard for me because I really have to feel like they are authentic to my just to what I would, to my approach, but I really like 11 rings by Phil Jackson um, because he coached two championship teams um, to multiple championships and had just very big personalities bringing amazing talent, you know, to each of those years and having him talk about his leadership journey and how he'd hear about different leadership styles and he'd watch different leadership styles and experience, you know, being led differently He really had to come up with his own authentic leadership style that was an aggregate of a lot of pieces that he picked up along the way. That really resonated with me. And that word authentic as a leadership style um, resonated with me. Wow, what a great choice. Have you ever uh, heard of the Proust questionnaire? I don't know. Well, Marcel Proust was a French writer back in the early 1900s. And he put together this series of questions and believed that in answering these questions that uh, a person reveals much more about themselves. We get to know the real person. So I'd love to run down some of these. They're pretty, they're pretty safe. I promise. I would love to run a few of these by you if you're willing. Are you game? I'm game. All right. Answer with the first thing that kind of comes off top of your head. Okay. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Oh, a beach. There's a beach involved for sure. Um, Time off. Family and friends. Nice. Any particular beach? Yeah, and an ocean beach. For me, it's an ocean, ocean beach. beach. Any particular one? Got a favorite? Um, Southern California. It's central to Southern California. I've been to a lot of beaches, and there's a lot of beautiful beaches in the world. Those will always be my, my favorite, because that's where I spend a lot of time with family growing up. Nice. What is the quality you most like in a person? Self-awareness. Um, and that's a lifelong journey, and some are better at it than others, probably. And I know it's something that's 
something I strive for and in myself and keep working at. Which talent would you most like to have? I would like to be an engineer. <laughs> really? I, yeah, I've been so lucky. As I said, I'm not an engineer. I'm, I'm really a non-technical, technical person. And, you know, throughout my career, relied on so many, you know, people to help me really understand that essence of what we do as an agency. My dad was an engineer. Both my grandpas were engineers. Both my uncles were engineers. I don't, I, it didn't occur to me as a career path when I was a student because I wasn't strong in some of the STEM subjects and I really wish I was. I think I'd be better as a student now than I ever was then. But um, yeah, I would like to feel like I could design something and be somewhat confident that it would work. <laughs> <laughs> what do you consider to be your greatest achievement? Well, gosh, I don't that know. That one is a tough I, one, right? It, it is a tough one, but I do feel like it's a, it's one that people should reflect on periodically. I really have as, as not a strong STEM student, I have to carve out a good career that I, I really am happy to have had and, and continue to have. It's not anything I ever could have envisioned for myself early on. So I really view myself at this point in my career as wanting to kind of help share that with students and soon to be graduates so that they can be thinking about things that they don't know that are out there. I mean, they're out there thinking that students today are thinking of career fields that we never thought of before that didn't exist, but helping to kind of reflect back to them some of the things that are possible, I think is important. I think that's an awesome answer. All right. Hopefully this last question is a little bit easier. Who is your favorite superhero? Wow. That's really hard. Cause I just watching um, the Avengers series or a lot of them again, and again, and again, over the last year, <laughs> that will tell a lot about me. And I don't think I'm smart enough about superheroes as characters <laughs> to really answer that and not be judged. <laughs> That's all right. Is there just one that sticks out? And it could even be from childhood, right? Cartoons, movies, whatever. Oh, I liked Speed Racer as a kid a lot. Geez, there's probably a lot of people listening to this that have no idea who Speed Racer is. No idea who that is. Oh, man. That's just, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? I think Marcel Proust would approve. Alicia, thank you so much. Thank you. Many thanks once again to Alicia Kirchner for joining us today on Digging Deep. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review and let us know what questions you have for the Sacramento District team. We just might answer them in a future episode. Music